0: Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to our familiar friend of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. As you know, this is one of the most famous and quoted portions of all of Scripture, much less 1 Corinthians. Let me read the entire chapter to you this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long, and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thanketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as Also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Many graces are important in the Christian life. There are many qualities and character traits essential to a robust and mature follower of the Lord Jesus a Christian is to be a man or woman of faith. Uh, they are to be a person of holy character. They ought to be a person that is disciplined and determined for godliness. They are to be generous. They are to be hospitable. They are to be studious with an ever growing desire for knowledge in the things of God. They are to be evangelistic with a desire for others to come to know the Lord. They are to be gracious in their time and in their money. They are to be forgiving. They are to be benevolent. All of these things make up the composition of Christian character. But in the survey of Christian graces, there is one attribute that seems to stand head and shoulders above the rest. It is the attribute that is given first in the list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It is the attribute that identifies us to the world as followers of Jesus in John 13. It is the attribute that reveals that we are born of God and know God in 1 John 4. It is the attribute that the Bible identifies as an expression of who God is. God is this attribute, the Bible says. And it is the attribute that Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, cites as the guiding principle in the exercise of all spiritual gifts. We are speaking, of course, of the attribute of love. 1 Corinthians is often referred to as the love chapter. And you'll hear it frequently quoted at weddings uh, you'll hear it frequently uh, quoted in, in cards and, and, and things like that. When I worked at a Christian bookstore, it seemed like half of the items in the stationery department had something from 1 Corinthians 13 on them. And while this chapter may have application in those areas, in a marital relationship and other places, it's not the primary context of this chapter. Remember, I, I gave you a very deep, exegetical insight into First Corinthians. Uh, very, very profound. I hope you all wrote it down. That, that, that is this. Chapter 13 comes right after chapter 12 and right before chapter 14. I know I just blew your minds with that. Uh, since that's the kind of stuff you have to go to seminary to learn, you know? What? You mean God didn't give me 1 Corinthians 13 so I'd have a nice plaque to hang in my kitchen? Well, that's not the primary reason why he gave you chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. What does this profound exegetical insight teach us? Well, it teaches us that the primary context of the love chapter is the use of our spiritual gifts in the church. Remember that 1 Corinthians 13 is part of a section that began where? Back in chapter 11 and continues to the end of chapter 14 in which Paul is dealing with a a variety of issues relating to the public worship of God in the church. That's where this chapter finds itself. God gave you 1 Corinthians 13 to teach you that love is the Christian grace that is to guide you in the use of your spiritual gifts and the way you treat and serve your brothers and sisters in the church. If there was a thesis statement for this chapter, that was it. And now, uh, does Paul include some general universal truths that apply beyond this immediate context? Absolutely he does. And we're going to look at some of those general universal truths, the descriptors of love. But... This is a, a true profound exegetical insight. You can only go beyond the immediate context of Scripture when you first root yourself in that context. You, you, you never get to skip the immediate context to go to an application. But you have to go to applications as they flow consistently and contextually out of their original context. So, I want you to see these general principles that we will look at concerning love and charity, but I want you to see them in light of their overall context in the book of 1 Corinthians, in the section that it finds itself in. And before we dive into this text, I need to briefly address two preliminary items that are important for us to to state. One has to do with how this text is translated in our English Bibles. And the other has to do with how I intend to approach this chapter in preaching it, okay? So the first, it's a translational um, note that we need to just just mention so that there's no confusion. And that is that the Greek word used throughout 1 Corinthians is the word agape, agape, agape. And it is translated in most every modern version as the word love. That's the word love. You heard me read this chapter, and, and even though we're calling it the love chapter, you, you noticed I didn't say the word love one time. Well, why is that? Well, that's because the King James translates agape as charity. And they do that in this chapter, but they also do it in other places in the New Testament. The word agape. Now, sometimes the King James translators will translate agape as love. Uh, it's actually a few times outside of 1 Corinthians where we find it translated also as charity. Now, in our day, the word charity is often associated with financial donations to needy causes. That's what we think of when we think of charity. We think of making a, a charitable contribution. But that's not what the translators intended when they used the word charity. See, the, the English word love is a very broad word. With a variety of uses, and, and especially in our day, we use that word to describe our wives and our supper. I mean, we use it to describe our job and our church. We use it to describe our kids and our dog, right? We, we just love everything. Uh, but but <laughs> the word love is really more specific than that, and you have to look at the context in which the word is used. Whenever you see the word love in the Bible, you have to ask, what kind of love is is this verse talking about? There's romantic love, there's brotherly love, there's divine love, right? There's all these different sorts of love. And ultimately, only the context uh, reveals the proper usage in each instance. But to help us identify the kind of love mentioned in the passage... The King James Version, and some of the earlier English versions did as well. Not all of them, by the way. Some of the versions earlier than the King James just translated this as love. But the King James uses the word charity to be more specific. Uh, Charity refers to a love between Christians. So it's a brotherly love that is active and self-sacrificing. So it's kind of like love in action as exhibited between brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I only mention this because the words love and charity are both fine and accurate translations, and they're uh, entirely synonymous, really, with one with another. One is just kind of a, a form of the other. And as I'm preaching through this, I'm going to be using the terms interchangeably. And I, I don't want anyone to be confused and to wonder if there's a difference. So when I say love, And when I say charity, I'm talking about the same exact thing. I'm not making a distinction between the terms because I really don't think there is much of a distinction between the terms. Charity is love. Love is charity. So there's the translational tidbit. But now let me tell you how I intend to approach this chapter from a preaching perspective. As I was preparing to preach 1 Corinthians 13, I realized that there were essentially two ways to preach it. Some preachers devote many messages to this one chapter and they, they lean more heavily on the, the universal truths pertaining to the grace of love. I saw a few different expositions of 1 Corinthians that included over 20 sermons from this one chapter. And certainly there is enough there to preach 20 sermons from this one chapter. And perhaps at a later date in our, in our church's life it would be very beneficial for us on a, at a prayer meeting or even on a Sunday service, a certain Sunday series, to just focus on this chapter, not apart from its context, but not focusing so heavily on the context and, and really just digging in to this as a standalone text. Uh, that might be good for us to do at some, some point. But for the purpose of this series, as I've been now preaching through 1 Corinthians for, I think this will be Sermon 62, I don't want us to lose sight of the context. And so I'm going to give you a much more concise exposition of this chapter. Not because um, because we've already been in 1 Corinthians for quite some time, and I'm just itching to finish, though I will admit to you freely that 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 does uh, play a part in the decision-making process there, being in it for 60 two weeks, and then thinking about another 20 weeks just in this one chapter when we still have the Mount Everest that is chapter 15 to come. Uh, But I want us to just focus on love as it relates to the exercise of spiritual gifts. So Lord willing, this will be part one of a part two message. I say Lord willing because I have a lot that I want to say to you today, and uh, I'm not going to be like Pharaoh. You know, a lot of Baptist preachers are like Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Because they won't let God's people go, right? So I'm not going to do that to you today. Uh, but I have broken down this chapter into four headings. And, and I want us to consider the first two headings today and the second two headings uh, next Sunday. So really what I've done is I've written one really long sermon on this chapter. And I'm going to try to preach it in two sessions. So part one of part two is today. And if I was going to give a title for both of them, I guess I would just take the title that Paul gives us at the end of chapter 12 when he tells us that he's going to show unto us a more excellent way. So charity is the more excellent way. So number one, I want you to see charity and its first place. Charity and its first place. The Apostle Paul begins this chapter by stating the unrivaled preeminence and primacy of love as a cardinal grace in the Christian life. And he does this by citing a selection of spiritual gifts that were so important to the Corinthians and then emphatically stating that these gifts are absolutely meaningless apart from love. Notice he says, verse 1, he begins, he says, Though I speak... With the tongues of men and of angels. The gift of tongues, as you know, was the gift that most captivated the Corinthian church. They were obsessed and enamored with this gift of tongues. And so it's no surprise that Paul addresses it first here in chapter 13. Why were they so obsessed with the gift of tongues? Because the gift of tongues was very showy. It was very ostentatious. It was very exciting for someone in the church to get up and speak in tongues. And everybody's looking around saying, wow, what a, what a cool thing that guy's doing. He's speaking in a foreign language. By the way, it is a foreign language. You know that, right? It's not gibberish. What does it say? The tongues of men and of angels. So it's not just, just gibberish. It's a known language. And that would be pretty cool. Right? If somebody just stood up and, you know, uh, Lori doesn't know Swahili, she stands up and speaks perfectly in Swahili, and Jackson doesn't know Swahili, and he stands up and hears her in Swahili, you know. If that happened, all of us would probably go home and talk about it at dinner. Okay? And so they were obsessed with this gift. The one who exercised the gift would have garnered attention and amassed the adoration of others in the assembly. The same is true in churches today. That, that, that emphasize tongues and build their whole churches and whole ministries around tongues. They've even created a doctrine that says that tongues is the sign that you're full of the Holy Spirit. And they give it this overwhelmingly prominent place in their worship. But the point that Paul is making here is that exercising the gift of tongues in order to draw attention to yourself and puff up your own ego as one who is more spiritual than others is exactly the opposite of the way that spiritual gifts are to be exercised. God didn't give you spiritual gifts for you. He gave you spiritual gifts so that you could be a blessing to others. And so Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I become a sounding brass or a tinkling Symbol. Sounding brass, when you read that verse, when you you have a toddler in your home, that verse has a whole new application. (laughs) Because one of John's favorite things to do is to go into the kitchen and take out all the pots. And the day that we gave him a wooden spoon, you would have thought that he won President of the United States. (laughs) And he realized that he could sit on the floor and bang those pots with that wooden spoon. And, uh, you know, it's really hard for me, because my study is not far from that. It's really hard for me to sit in my study and get anything done when he's in there banging on brass. It's chaotic. It's loud. It's not helpful. Paul says, that's exactly what you sound like speaking in tongues apart from the gift of, or the grace of love. It's exactly what you sound like when you're just doing it to, to entertain yourself and, to garner attention for yourself. Notice that he doesn't say that you're not actually exercising the gift. He says, no, you are exercising the gift and you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Apart from love, the gift becomes worthless and profits nothing. God gives spiritual gifts as avenues for his people to serve one another. But listen, if I don't love you, I have no desire to serve you. Think about that. But if I do love you but I love myself more then I'll use my gifts primarily for my own benefit. And when spiritual gifts are used apart from charity towards others they profit nothing. Sounding brass and tinkling cymbals don't edify anyone. There's no edification in that. They just create a bunch of useless noise in the church. Apart from love That's what you are when you come here. You're just useless noise if you're not here to love one another. Mm -hmm. It might be loud. It might get everyone's attention. We might go home and talk about it, but is it profiting anything? Well, not if it's not done in love. So Paul continues. He gives another example. He says, though I have the gift of prophecy. I'm not even going to touch on the debate of what, what these gifts are. We've made an attempt in a previous message at defining some of these. But whether you think that Paul is here talking about gifts that have completely ceased or whether you think he's talking about gifts that in some way continue, the, the message of the chapter is still applicable It's still true in his day and in our day. Say there's someone in the Corinthian church with the gift of prophecy who receives direct revelation from God through dreams and visions and, and he, he comes to church to, to tell his revelation to the church. Well, if their desire for prophesying isn't to edify the church in love, then what good is their gift? Do they really want to communicate the word of God to the people of God for the blessing of the people of God? Or do they want the church to look at them and say, wow, he's so spiritual, he's a prophet? Well, maybe you're saying, well, I believe that that kind of gift of prophecy has ceased, okay? Okay. Well, let's say you're a great preacher in the New Testament church. You're an eloquent speaker. You're captivating in the pulpits. If you don't have love, so what? By the way, I've learned that your love for your people or your lack thereof will manifest in the way you preach to them. It's not hard to hear the difference in a man who gets in the pulpit with a desire to lovingly serve those to whom he has the privilege to preach and a man whose only desire is to show off and make a name for himself with no care for the congregation. The the type of man that wants you to go away thinking great thoughts of him and not great thoughts about God. The kind of preaching that truly blesses a congregation is preaching done from a heart of Christian charity. I'm not saying that my love for you is an excuse for bad preaching. But I am saying that it doesn't matter how proficient I am in the pulpit. If I'm not preaching to you out of love, then my preaching will profit you absolutely nothing because I won't be preaching to you from the right motives. And you won't want to listen to a man preach to you who has no care for your soul. The flip side to that is, if you really know that I love you, and I hope and trust that you do, you'll be forgiving if I get up and lay an egg in the pulpit. And so, Paul's point is the same. Love, charity, so much more important than the gift. So much more important than the gift. Then he says, What about if I'm one who understands all mysteries and has all knowledge and has all faith? Again, we tried defining these in a a previous message. Maybe you're a master theologian. Maybe you understand deep, complex subjects of theology. You've read Calvin and you've read Luther and you've read Augustine and you've read Owen and Voss and MacArthur and Sproul. You've read all the books. You know a lot, but if all that theology and intellectual understanding doesn't help you love your brothers and sisters, what good is it? That's what Paul's saying. Do you think God is impressed by how smart you are? Do you think God is sitting in heaven raising his eyebrows because of how much you've learned? Charles Hodge says this, listen to this, quote, Satan may have and doubtless has more of intelligence and power than any man ever possessed, and yet he is Satan still. Our intellectual attainments are of no value apart from love. Remember the words of God through the Apostle Paul just a few chapters earlier. Knowledge puffeth up, charity edifieth. You will be more blessed in your Christian life and more edified in your Christian life by the brothers and sisters who love you the most more than you will be by the brothers and sisters who know the most now hopefully we're not sacrificing one for the other hopefully we have brothers and sisters who know a lot and are full of love it's not an either or here okay but there is a priority and love has the first place love has the first place and then Paul goes on, verse 2, he says, or verse 3, he says, and Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned. What's he talking about? Well, he's saying that not only public gifts of ministry, but even outward acts of benevolence are of no avail without love. Giving to the poor is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Only when it's done from a heart of love. Was it a wonderful thing when the Pharisees would, would parade themselves to the tithe box and wave their money in the air so that everybody could see how, how gracious they were and how much money they gave? Is that loving? Is it loving for you to, to write your tithe check and walk through the church and pass down all the pews and wave it in front of everybody's face before you finally drop it in the in the box? Is that a loving thing to do? doesn't matter how, how many zeros are. On that check. If you do that, you're not doing something out of love. When it's done for selfish motives, such as the practice of the Pharisees who gave alms to make them make others think well of them, the Bible says it profits nothing. Shockingly, verse 3 even indicates that it's even possible to suffer persecution in a manner void of love. Though I give my body to be burned. We think, how in the world could someone suffer for the sake of Christ apart from love? I mean, what, what else would motivate them? Well, I don't want to chase the rabbit too long on this, but I I, I do believe that especially here in the West today, we live in a culture where we, we almost kind of idolize persecution and we want to brag about how persecuted we are so that others will look at us and say, oh, look how much he's suffering. Problem is, we don't know what persecution is. We think, you know, somebody dislikes you on Facebook or something and you're suffering for the Lord. Paul uses this extreme example of giving our bodies to be burned to illustrate the truth that no amount of work makes up for a lack of love. No amount of work, or, or you could say no amount of financial giving, no amount of anything makes up for a lack of love God not only cares about what we do, he cares about why we do them. Whatever we do, if it's not done out of love to God and love to his people, is a work offered to an idol. Mm. It's a work offered to an idol. Whatever we love most is what we will serve. And if, at the end of the day, we love ourselves... More than we love God, then we may work very hard and we may do things outwardly that seem religious and seem pious, but they're acts of idolatry if we're doing them for our own reputation. Understand that? We're working for the idol of self, for whatever the idol is. So you need to ask yourself do I love God and his people more than I love myself? Am I seeking to use my gifts to glorify God and bless His people, or am I using my gifts and talents and labors for my own fame and reputation? The Bible tells us that a cup of cold water offered to a disciple in the name of Jesus from sincere love is worth more in the sight of God than giving all your goods to feed the poor. If you're doing that for selfish ambition. We see in the these first 3 verses here that charity or Christian love is to have the first place in the Christian life. Paul will say at the end of chapter 16 as he closes this epistle, let all your things be done with charity. Let all that you do be done in love. Love is of greater value than the most excellent privileges and the most excellent performances. It is the thing that distinguishes us as the people of God. Spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecies, they are like jewels that that decorate the body. But love works inwardly to make the soul itself a jewel. Christian love is a grace possessed exclusively by true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be many on the last day who will say, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in your name? Mm -hmm. Have we not performed miracles in your name? Have we not spoken in tongues in your name? Have we not given our money in in your name? And Jesus will say, oh yes, you did all of those things, but you didn't do them from a heart of true Christian love. Mm -hmm. Therefore, depart from me, I never knew you. Because those who know God love. If any man loves, he's born of God and knows God. I'm just, I'm just quoting the Bible. Brothers and sisters, don't obsess over the spiritual gifts of the Christian life. Obsess yourself with Christian love, and guess what? Your giftings will naturally exercise themselves appropriately. Okay, so now that we've established this central thesis, the first place of Christian love, I want to just spend the rest of our time defining what this love looks like. Verses 4-7, through and fittingly, I'm going to give these verses the heading, Charity and its Fruits. Charity and its Fruits. In these four verses, Paul personifies charity. You know what it means to personify something. You take something that's not a person and you speak about it as if it were a person. He personifies charity and he describes her with 16 attributes. It's as if he's setting love before the Corinthians, and he's painting this picture of a person who stands in stark contrast to their selfish, self-indulged behavior that was the root of their divisiveness and contention. Some of you may also recognize this heading, Charity and Its Fruits, because in the year 1738, Jonathan Edwards, one of the, the greatest theological minds that America ever produced, preached a series of 16 sermons from 1 Corinthians. And he would later publish those 16 sermons in a book that he titled, Charity and Its Fruits. By the way, that was the only sequential expository series that Edwards ever preached. He didn't preach through books of the Bible like like we often do today. Most All of the Puritans did not do that. It was not a common practice in their day. But the one sequential expository series that Edwards preached through was 1 Corinthians 13, 16 sermons from this chapter. And he published it under the title, Charity and Its Fruits. It's a gold mine of expositional treasure, specifically in the way that Edwards deals with verses 4 through 7. So as we move fairly quickly and we, we get through these jam-packed verses, I'm going to throw in some, some Edwards nuggets here. And I trust that your soul will greatly profit from them. But I must also warn you, if you're anything like me, these four verses of Scripture are especially convicting to study and meditate upon. Because here in these verses, God gives us a perfect description of love. And the text reveals to us just how unloving we are many times in our own lives. So not if, but when you fail, as we go through these verses, you must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, who perfectly possesses true love. And you must beg for his holy spirit to be at work in your heart, creating this love within you. So now let us look at verses 4 through 7, charity and its fruits. You realize we're 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 now ascending to one of the mountain peaks uh, of scripture. Verse 4, he begins and he says, Charity suffereth long. Some versions may just translate this as love is patient. What does it mean to to be long-suffering? To be long-suffering is literally to endure suffering for a long time. It is the opposite of being quick-tempered. It is the opposite of being easily aroused. It is the opposite of being ready to become angry at the drop of a dime. Christian love patiently bears the offenses of others. It endures the evil of others. It does not always insist upon its own rights. Christian love is not quick to yell, that's not fair, you can't treat me that way. That's not one of charity's fruits. Charity does not seek revenge for wrongs committed. Love is not vengeful. Vengeful in bitter words, vengeful in bitter deeds. Love does not seek a way to get even Love does not seek a way to pay someone back for a sin that they've committed. Oftentimes when someone wrongs us, that's that's the first thought that comes into our mind. How can I get back? How can I pay them back? How can I get revenge? Whereas love says, no, I'm just going to bear this. I'm just going to endure this. I'm just going to be long-suffering with this. May I continue to step on some toes? Love prevents us from constantly talking about how greatly we've been wronged in the past. We all know people like that. Still to this day, every time you see them, they want to talk about some horrible thing that someone did to them 20 years ago. It really characterizes their life, it's part of their identity. You even will describe them as that friend who had this thing happen to them. That's that's how you think about them because they just always talk about it. You've heard the story a hundred times and every time they tell it, they sound a little bit more bitter than the last time they told it. We see this in the church. Someone comes into the church and every conversation is about how every church before this one was just terrible to them. Every pastor they've ever had has just been awful to them. Every uh, church member they've ever known has just been so awful to them. And, and I'm not saying that we're not sinned against. And I'm not saying that we're not sinned against in church. What I am saying is that one of the fruits of love is not obsessing and fixating our minds on all the sins that have been committed against us. That's not a fruit of charity. That's actually called the sin of bitterness. When we obsess in an unforgiving spirit and we, we hold on and we we focus our minds on every wrong that's ever been committed against us. I, I want to speak biblically and I want to speak pastorally. I'm not trying to downplay the severity of, of the wrongs that have been committed against you. and And... and you shouldn't either by the way you shouldn't just just overlook sin that's committed against you but you must understand that bitterness is not the fruit of christian love bitterness is a sin and guess what it's a sin that only hurts the one who's committing it that person that sinned against you 5 years ago and you're still mad at them for that sin that they committed against you it doesn't bother them at all you're the one suffering you're the one that's upset The fruit of charity is that we don't cease to love and pray for our neighbor even when they sin against us. Do we not so quickly justify thinking ill about others because of something that they've done to us? I'll pray for you, and I'll love you, I'll help you, but not when you sin against me. Now, you've lost me. No love for me, no forgiveness. I'm not praying for you. You're my enemy. Is that, is that the fruit of love? Was not our Lord Jesus the ultimate example of this kind of love? that, that had, He had a charity that was long-suffering? He, he was the object of spite and reproach from the very ones He came to save. Yet he uttered not one word of bitterness. Go home. Read the the last few chapters of the Gospels. Read the Passion Week of Christ. Read the account of him carrying his own cross to Jerusalem as he was whipped and beaten and spat upon when they parted his garments and tore his clothes off of him and shoved a crown of thorns into his brow and nailed him to a cross and hung him there, naked and ashamed to die and thrust a spear through his side and he utters not one word of bitterness." but he prays for his murderers even as they kill him. Father, forgive them. What is that? That's a love that suffers long. Believer, a long-suffering love is the only thing that will maintain your peace. If every sin committed against you frustrates and disturbs you, you will never have peace. You will be like a log in the middle of the Pacific Ocean being tossed to and fro. But a patient, long-suffering love keeps your heart at peace even when you're sinned against. When you're tempted to become angry and vengeful and bitter towards someone who has transgressed you, just think of all the times you've transgressed God. It won't take you long to be very thankful that God doesn't hold grudges the way we do. Amen. No, He's been so patient with us. This morning, He is so patient with us. Because God is love. <laughs> Charity is kind. Kindness is deeper than niceness. You should be nice. But you shouldn't just be nice. You should be kind. Kindness is not superficial. Kindness is an expression of love from the heart. Kindness is when you do good to others for the sake of love, not for what you expect to get in return. Kindness is fulfilled in the golden rule of Matthew seven twelve: do unto others as you would have them do to you. We, we, we misread that verse, don't we? We, we read it and we want it to say, do unto others as they have done unto us. But that's not what Jesus said. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Meaning, even if they don't do that to you, you're still supposed to do it to them. Yeah. Kindness calls us to give of ourselves. That's what kindness is. Our time, our money, our resources. Knowing that we will never out-kindness God whatever we sacrifice in kindness to others, God is able to make up to us tenfold. Okay, You're not going to go broke tithing. You just won't. You're not going to go broke helping out a brother or sister in need. You just won't. You're not going to, to go poor feeding the hungry. You just won't. You, you're not going to, to miss out on something because you spent time helping a brother or sister in Christ. You just won't. God will make it up to you tenfold. So just exercise charity. A charity that's kind. Notice he goes on and he says that charity envieth not. Envieth not. Christian love is not jealous. It's not full of lust. Edwards defines envy as, quote, a spirit of dissatisfaction dissatisfaction with and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others as compared with our own. Envy is when we are upset when good things happen to other people because those good things didn't happen to us. Envy is not having a desire for something. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong to see someone drive by in in a truck and say, you know what, it would be nice to have a truck like that. Nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when we see that guy drive by in the truck and we become angry with that that guy because we think he doesn't deserve it, and I do. God, you should have given it to me. We envy when we think that God should have given to us what he gave to someone else, blessed us with a blessing he blessed someone else, and that leads us to be upset at the blessings of others and even, listen, and even rejoice when we hear of bad things happening to them. I mean, you're shaking your heads like, oh, no, not me, never. But yet, how quickly does that attitude spring up in our minds? But love enables us to be satisfied and content with wherever God has placed us and whatever God has given to us. And if God has given something better to someone else, True Christian love gives us the ability to genuinely rejoice with that person. I'm going through a difficult time. I've lost my job. I don't have a whole lot of money. And my brother gets a big promotion at work. Envy causes me to become bitter and angry and say, God, why did you give it to him? He didn't deserve it. He was already making more money than me. already had a better job than me. I should have gotten that. Don't, Lord, don't you see what I'm going through? That's envy. But love says, brother, I'm so happy for you. I'm so glad that God has blessed you with this, and and I'm praying for you, and I would appreciate it if you would pray for me because I'm going through a difficult time, and I I could use something like that as well. That's Christian love. Don't be that person that anytime someone receives a blessing, you're always quick to remind everyone else of how undeserving that person is. It's like God is exalting someone, and you think it's your responsibility to bring them down. but rather be someone who rejoices with those who rejoice and esteem others better than yourselves. Edwards, quote, The spirit of envy is the very contrary spirit of heaven, where all rejoice in the happiness of others, and it is the very spirit of hell itself, which is a most hateful spirit, and one that feeds itself on the ruin of the prosperity and happiness of others, on which account some have compared envious persons to caterpillars, which delight in devouring the most flourishing plants. Don't be an envy caterpillar. Charity vaunteth not itself. It's not puffed up. There are few things more contrary to the character of Christian love than arrogance or pride. Charity does not seek to win the admiration and applause of others. Charity doesn't do the things it does to to receive accolades and trophies. Charity doesn't have a desire for everyone to know how wonderful you are, how smart you are, how gifted you are, how talented you are. How the church has just never had as good of a church member as you. And how the Christian religion itself probably wouldn't even survive if you were not an adherent. But when the loving man is among others. He doesn't behave as if his words are most important. He's quicker to listen than he is to speak. And he doesn't expect everyone to bow down in agreement to everything he says. That, that's what love looks like. Look, if, if you are shocked when someone expresses a different opinion than you, you probably need to check your love for others. When you, when you realize that your most favorite conversation to talk about in a social setting is yourself, that should be an indicator to you. It's an indicator to me. I, I can confess many failures on this very point. I mean, just the other night, was out with a group of pastors and church members from another church, and I'm driving home and I'm thinking to myself on the way home, I'm thinking, I spent way too much time talking about myself tonight. Christian love helps us not to be reflective in conversation, but responsive in conversation. What do I mean by that? Well, when someone shares something with you and says, This just happened in my life, you don't say, Oh yeah, yeah, something similar happened to me, and da 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 What have you just done? You just hijacked the whole conversation to make it all about you. I- I'm the worst person I know at doing that. I do that all the time. Please don't amen. Mm-hmm. But I'm aware of it, and I don't want to do it. When somebody shares something about them, Christian love that doesn't vaunt itself, that's not puffed up, it finds interest in actually... Imagine, this is a shocking concept, to actually be interested in other people. Love is not stubborn and stiff-necked. We live in a culture that has idolized stubbornness. I mean, we live in a culture where people will brag about how stubborn they are. And I think that's because we oftentimes mistake stubbornness for boldness. See, Christian love is firm in its biblical convictions. Absolutely. Christian love is dogmatic in the, the truth of the Word of God. But it's not stubborn and arrogant. If the bare idea that someone else might be right and you might be wrong is just unthinkable to you, that's not the fruit of charity. Stephen, in Acts 7, when he was preaching that famous sermon that, by the way, got him stoned, which a sermon like this is the kind of sermon that gets you stoned, what did he say about Israel? You are a stiff-necked, stubborn generation. It's not stubborn. There's nothing... There's nothing beautiful and gracious and loving about just being stubborn, being obstinate. Some people are just obstinate just for the sake of being obstinate. Charity's not puffed up. Love is not proud, boastful, or braggadocious. But love is modest, meek, lowly, and humble. That's what love is. A truly humble man is sensible of the small extent of his own knowledge, of his own ability, and of his own wisdom, and the great extent of his weaknesses and ignorance. Edward says true divine love is an humble love, and that love which is not humble is not truly divine. The sin of pride. It's just an absolute killer. I've seen it. I've seen the, the havoc it can, it can wreak in my own life and in the lives of others. There's no such thing as a good sin. There's no such thing as a little sin or a light sin. But there are some besetting sins that don't have as deep and as a, a penetrating effect as the sin of pride. Some of the best advice I ever received was an older man of God who said, your church can survive a bad sermon. They can, survive, they can survive mistakes that you will make in the ministry. They can even survive some of your sinful failings that will inevitably happen to you as a fallen man in the pastorate, But, but you cannot survive the sin of pride. The sin of pride will kill you. It will put you on the express lane to apostasy. It will alienate you from others. It will cut you off from the means of grace. It will ostracize you from the church. It will make you think that you are a God unto yourself. And it will rob your heart and empty your soul of everything that is love. Whenever the ugly head of pride rises up in your heart, you must cut it off. You must cut it off. How many schisms and divisions in the history of the church, and I don't just mean this church, but the church, this one too, have in some way been either indirectly or directly because of pride in one or both of the parties. See, we, we like to think that, that divisions in the church happen when people disagree with one another. That's, that's not why they happen. They happen when people disagree with one another, and instead of being humble about it, they're prideful about it. And it's not the disagreement that causes the schism. It's the pride that causes the schism. So, yes, we can survive the the errors in our own personal theology, but we cannot survive pride. Paul goes on and he says that charity doth not behave itself unseemly. Well, what does that mean? It means that charity is not rude and abrasive. Charity has manners. Christian love is not obnoxious and off-putting. It, it, it has a respect for the dignity of other people. Where, where you know, you, you care about how your actions could offend others. Again, what a radical concept. Because we live in this culture that says what? I'm going to do what I want to do because I want to do it and I'm an American and I'm a free man and I have the right to do it so I don't care about you. I'm going to do what I want. And there's so many people, they hear that, they hear that mentality and they, they say, rah, rah, yeah, that's, that's the way. Stick it to the man. And Paul says, no, love doesn't behave itself unseemly. L- love says... Hey, if I'm doing something that bothers you, that offends you, even though I have the right to do it, if if it's a problem with you, I just won't do it anymore. Simple as that. Unless, of course, it's something that God is commanding me to do, then I'm sorry. I I love you very much, but I must obey God rather than men. It was something interesting about the the German culture when we were over there. Um, Maybe the, the last night or the night before the last night, I think it was the last night we were in Germany, Sitting with the pastor in his home, and, and I asked him the question. I said, "I said, how did we fit in these last two weeks? You know, were we were we kind of like the obnoxious Americans coming to Europe? You know." And he said, "And and I, I was taken a little off guard." He says, and "He said it in a very kind, and a very polite way." But he said, "He said we fit in very well." He says, "But he says I I do believe that there's a difference in in." The way Germans respect other people's property, in the way Americans respect other people's property, I said, "Interesting. Can you give me an example?" He says, "Well, in Germany, it, it's 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 you, you don't just walk into someone's house and and just go tramping around in your shoes and and not really caring about what you track in. Not that we did that, you know. We I, he told me I was an undercover German because I told him that we're we're some of the only." People that we know in the States that just never wear shoes in our house. And so he said, Well, you must be an undercover, undercover German. But he said, You know, it would be very abnormal if you have a, a toddler to just you go into someone's house and just let that toddler run around. I thought, It's an interesting statement. And, and I'm not going to say I totally agree or totally disagree or anything like that, but I, I, I am saying that I think he's getting at a point of what Christian love is we respect others. Respect others' property. We don't want to be offensive and abrasive and, and rude and unkind. and we, we want to be respectful in the way we behave when we're around other people. Also, charity, love, doesn't cause you to do something of which you ought to be ashamed, behaving itself unseemly. I, I, I don't know. I can't speak for ladies, I can speak for guys. You you know the scene I'm about to describe. You're sitting around in a social setting with some brothers, and one guy makes a joke and it's a, it's a you know it kind of pushes the limits. But then the other guy has to one up him, and then pretty soon by the end of the conversation, you all kind of feel a little rotten, mm-hmm. and you're all thinking, why did we do that? Why, why why did why did we test those limits? Why 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 did we have to one up each other and, and and push this social setting? That wasn't. That wasn't seemly. It wasn't becoming of godly Christian men. And so when we love one another, we we behave ourselves seemly. We're becoming. Love leads you to act with dignity around others, something our culture forgot a very long time ago. But in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we we still are are commended to act with chivalry and, and modesty and dignity when we 're around other brothers and sisters, Paul says that love seeketh not her own. We've already seen the, the fruit of envieth not, and this fruit is similar to that one. There's se- several similarities in this list. Christian love seeks not its own, it seeks the good of others first. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 24. Let no one seek his own, but each one another's well-being. To state it very simply, charity is not selfish. A man who has charity does not love himself above others. A man who has charity does not wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and sing, "How great thou art." Moses commanded us in Leviticus nineteen eighteen to love others even as we love ourselves. Now that's a that's quite the command, isn't it? But Jesus, he, he turns it up a notch. He gives us an even harder command. What's his command? Love others as I have loved you. Don't seek your own. How has he loved us? With a sacrificial love. Christian love causes you to realize that you are not your own. God created you. You did not create yourself. You do not uphold yourself. And the one who has created you has given you the purpose for which you were created. You exist for His glory. That's why you exist. Purpose statement of your life, the glory of God. It's true of every one of you. It's true of me. If we really believe that, it ought to change the way we treat other people. It ought to change the way we... we, live our lives. I'm not living for me. I'm not living for my own fulfillment, my own entertainment, and to fulfill my own lusts, and to fulfill my own pleasures. I'm not seeking my own, but I'm loving others because God has created me for His glory and the good of other people. How unbecoming of us as men and women made in the image of God to selfishly seek our own. But... As Paul says, this beautiful statement in Philippians 2, when he's talking about Timothy, if you seek the things of Christ, that's the expression in Philippians 2, seek the things of Christ, God will make your interest his interest. And he is infinitely more able to provide for it than you are. Not seeking your own and seeking the things which are Christ's is in reality the best way to pursue your own fulfillment in the Christian life. How do I find contentment and joy and happiness and fulfillment in the Christian life? Quit living it for you. It's called the Christian life. Live it for Christ and make him the desire, make him the goal, make him the aspiration and God will satisfy the desires of your heart. Edward says this, quote, so that... Not to seek your own in the selfish sense is the best way of seeking your own in a better sense. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is not easily provoked. I hope you're seeing the synonyms here. To be long-suffering is to be not easily provoked. Love allows us to maintain a consistent character. We're not quick to be irritable and resentful. Have you ever been around someone that made you feel as if you had to walk on eggshells because you never knew when they were just going to fly off the rails? Don't be that person That, that makes others feel hostile and edgy and tense. But let your love erode this calming presence to those around you. Uh, The flip side is we also know people who we know they love us, and so we feel safe and comfortable being ourselves around them because we know that they're not going to be easily offended when they see who we are. Even if we say something that they might disagree with or do something that they don't like, we know they're not just going to flip out on us. Edwards suggests that when others sin against us, instead of being quickly provoked to anger, we should use it as an occasion for self-reflection. Before we get angry with them for whatever they just did to us, we should first ask, have we been guilty of doing the exact same thing to someone else? The the sin committed that enrages me, have I done this same exact thing? That, That is a sure way to mitigate our anger. Charity thinketh no evil. Charity does not always think the worst of others. That's what he means here, thinketh no evil. It doesn't attribute evil motives to others without a cause. It isn't suspicious of everything other people do. Well, they must be up to no good. Furthermore, charity does not lay the evil which it suffers to the charge of the wrongdoer. Charity is forgiving. It's forgiving of evil. Charity doesn't hold grudges. Charity doesn't keep a record of wrongs. To state it simply, charity doesn't think uncharitably of others. Again, we wouldn't be so quick to judge others if we were more cognizant of our own failings. That thing that causes you to think so poorly of someone else, have you ever done the exact same thing? And if you haven't, but for the grace of God, you would have. I'm not saying we should be foolish or naive, I'm not, I'm not diminishing the need for repentance. But I am saying that we should stop and consider ourselves before we break out the torches and pitchforks and go after someone else. See, I know myself enough to know that I'm not nearly as worried about being too embracing and accepting as I am about being too harsh and too critical. Speaking of kin, that's kin. Naturally, I see something that I disagree with. I want to break out the torch and the pitchfork without even asking, is that also true of me? Am I guilty of the same exact thing? All of us need God to help us to hate our sins just as much as we hate the sins of others. Mm -hmm. When I see a fall, when I see sin in others, you know what it causes in my heart? Fear. Because I think, well, if that person could commit that sin, I know I could. But for God's grace, Mm -hmm. sustaining me and keeping me. By nature, we often overreact and think the worst of something when we first hear of it. Isn't that how we are? How often, when the truth finally comes out, is it not nearly as bad as we initially judged? And in those times... We wish we could go back and be a little bit more gracious than we were. I think that's why Proverbs tells us, he that answers a matter before he hears it, it's a shame unto him. I can't remember a time when I regretted extending grace to someone else. But I can think of times when I nearly ruined a friendship because of how harsh and quick I was to think evil of someone. And let me just say this, if you're always quick to think evil of everyone else, you're going to live a sad life. And you're going to miss out on a lot of beautiful people. Paul goes on and he tells us that charity rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Love does not sympathize with evil. It finds no pleasure in sin. It does not enjoy wickedness. It does not delight in, in itself in the things that God hates. One of the ways that you can test your Christian love is by examining the things that bring you the most entertainment. Are you entertained when you hear of some sinful gossip? Are you entertained by media that glorifies immorality? Maybe you would never do it yourself. But you take pleasure in watching other people do it, even if those other people are just actors on a screen. You rejoice in it. Well, charity does not rejoice in these things. But what does charity rejoice in? The truth. It rejoices in the truth. It delights itself in the Word of God, and it meditates in His Word day and night. Love finds pleasure in the things of God, His will and His word, His church, His people, His righteousness. Charity is contrary to everything in our lives that is evil and it is sympathetic to everything that is good. Charity is what causes you to reject the lies of the world and to say amen at the proclamation of God's word. What are you saying when you say amen? You're saying, I love the truth and I just heard the truth. Amen. I love it. So be it. If you rejoice in the truth, it's because the love of God is at work within you. So what are you rejoicing in? Well, if you have love, you're not rejoicing in iniquity, but you're rejoicing in the truth. And lastly, we see this trilogy in verse 7. Love beareth all things, believeth all things. It's not a trilogy. There's four of them. Hopeth all things and endureth all things. I can preach, I can't count, apparently. (laughs) Beareth all things. I hope you're seeing the similarity and the repetition that God is using in this chapter. What does it mean that love bears all things? Well, it means, 1 Peter 4, that love covers a multitude of sins. Charity conceals the faults of others. It covers their sins. Christian love doesn't seek to embarrass other people. It doesn't always talk about all of their failings. Especially when they're not around. It believeth all things. Again, this doesn't mean that if you have love, you're just going to be accepting and tolerant of every ideology and every philosophy because you're just going to believe everything. That's not at all what Paul is saying there. What is Paul saying? He's he's referring to thinking well of other people and their, their thoughts, and their, their words, and their actions. Charity is not cynical. It's not pessimistic. It's not suspicious. Charity takes others at their word. When someone tells you something, you don't wait around for them to prove it before you believe it. No, you, you believe them until they give you a very clear reason to do otherwise. Why are we so cynical as Christians? Well, it's because we want to protect ourselves from getting hurt. We use cynicism as a defense mechanism. When someone visits the church and they say, oh, I love this church, I'm, I'll be here forever. Well, if we tell ourselves, oh, yeah, right, we've heard that line before. Well, then when they leave, it doesn't hurt as much. But is that, is that really the loving thing to do? Is that fair to that person? Is that loving to that person? No, what are we doing? We're we're being selfish and we're taking out our frustration from the wrongdoings of someone else on some poor stranger that just walked in the door. It's not believing all things. And again, I'm not saying I've mastered this. I have to constantly work at it when someone tells me something good. I have to stop and pause and say, okay, just rejoice in that. Don't think too far into it. They say they love the church. They say they love the preaching. Praise God. When someone makes a profession of faith. We reformed guys, we love to be cynical about that, don't we? Well, I know you say you love Jesus, but let's just see how you live for the next five years, and then we'll, we'll really decide if we believe your profession or not. Guess what? People have made false professions of faith in Jesus since his first coming, and they're going to continue to make false professions in Jesus right up until his second coming. I think Scripture might even indicate that there's going to be even more false professions the later we get into this thing. But when someone says, I love the Lord, what does love call us to do? When someone says, God saved me, what does love call us to do? Scrutinize? Examine? Here's the six hundred eighty-nine London Baptist Confession of Faith. When you get this memorized, come back to me and we'll talk. Is that, is that how we're supposed to respond? Or are we supposed to say, praise the Lord. I'm so happy to hear that. And if that profession doesn't pan out, then we will be very sorrowful to hear that. But what cynicism does is it just skips the whole rejoicing part and goes straight to the sorrow. What a miserable life! Well, let's, I'm trying to exhort you. Let's be loving. Let's be charitable. When, when we hear of another church, I'm, I mean, I'm, this isn't in the notes. I'm just totally crushing toes. When we hear of another church, that maybe God is doing something wonderful at another church. Maybe we heard of a a service and God saved a few people at another church, but it didn't have Baptist on the sign. Are we going to rejoice in that? Are we going to, well, we'll just see. We'll just see about that. It's no way to live, brothers and sisters. It's just not. Christian love enables us to rejoice at good news because we take men and women at their word. We believe them until they prove otherwise, instead of making them prove themselves before we believe them. Believeth all things. Charity believeth all things. Charity also hopeth all things. Not only do we believe in others, but we also hope for the best in regards to others. Love creates an optimism within us that excites us for the future. I'm not saying we should be foolhardy. I'm not saying we shouldn't be, you know, people like to call it be a realist or whatever the case may be. But if, if we believe, and, and let me say it this way, since we believe in a sovereign God who is good and wants good and is doing good, shouldn't we as Christians be the biggest optimists? Amen. William Carey went to India. One of my favorite quotes from church history said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. Put that on your Christian t-shirt. Put that on your bumper sticker. We're so short-sighted, and we, we we look to next week, and we say, well, it doesn't look so good from now to next Sunday. Maybe it doesn't. We serve an eternal God who's given good promises. We have every reason to hope, to hope. And to hope for the good of others. To desire the prosperity of others. Hope. All things. That's what charity will cause you to do. Also, lastly, charity endureth all things. Do you know what this is, this endureth all things? It's a military term that refers to enduring the attack of the enemy. Your Christian love will face many challengers. Hardship persecution, sorrow, reproach, pain, sadness, heartache, on and on the list will go. Things will happen to you in your Christian life that will put your love to the test. But Christian love is a love that endures. You know what the greatest enemy of your love is? It's not any challenger from without. It's your own besetting sins. But brothers and sisters, let me encourage you with this. Even your sins will not overcome true Christian love. Love endures the battle against sin. Love endures evil thoughts. Love endures excruciating temptations. It's not rugged discipline that overcomes these things. It's warm, genuine love. Mm -hmm. You will not overcome your love for sin by mechanical discipline. Do you know the only way you're going to overcome your love for sin is by replacing it with a greater love? A love for God, a love for His people. And this chapter tells us in verse 8, verse 7, this chapter tells us that love will have the last victory in our Christian life. All opposition to love will not overthrow it because true love is not merely outward and superficial, but it seeks down to the fiber of your heart and it changes who you are. What an encouragement. Love wins. Amen. Hatred does not win. Sin does not win. Sadness does not win. Depression does not win. Heartache does not win. Pain does not win. Love wins. And love will secure us in the faith. It will secure us in the Christian life. If you want to endure the Christian life, if you want to make it to heaven when you die, you must have love. Yeah. And if we want our church to survive for the glory of God, we must have love. Well, perhaps this sermon felt like drinking water from a fire hose, and I know that it was a bit long. But I really just wanted to get through this section. I didn't want to break up the context here. I wanted you to get all of what Paul is saying. We looked at the fruits of charity. And I trust that you realize that as we study this chapter, we're not just looking at a depiction of love. We're looking at a depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because everything in this chapter, though it's not perfectly true of us, it is and always will be perfectly true of Him. He is the one who perfectly, personally, and perpetually exhibited this love every day of His life. Who did He exhibit this love towards? You. You. Jesus Christ has loved you with a love that suffers long. Jesus Christ has loved you with a love that is kind. Jesus Christ has loved you with a love that envieth not, that vaunteth not itself, that is not puffed up, that does not behave itself unseemly, that seeketh not her own, that is not easily provoked, that thinketh no evil, that rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, that beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. That's how he's loved you. That's how he'll continue to love you. That's how he will always love you. And so he says, now you go and love others the way I've loved you. And because you can't do that, I will give you my Holy Spirit. And the first fruit of that Spirit will be this love. How do you love others? By yielding to the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And let love, let charity have her way in your heart. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us we thank You for this wonderful portion of Scripture that we now have a time to meditate upon it and think about it. And We must confess, Lord, that, that none of us exhibit these traits perfectly. But we thank You that we do, though imperfectly, exhibit these traits. And we only do so because of the Spirit at work in our life. So we pray, Lord, that You would allow us to decrease so that You might increase that we would be more conformed to the Christ and greater followers of Him through the power of the Spirit. Let us love one another even as You have loved us and let the world know that we are Your disciples by the love we have for one another. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.